So I'm really excited to have my friend Pablo here. Um, he is a, a hacker extraordinaire, a venture capitalist, and so <laughs> several extraordinaire as well, a polymath of many, many sorts. I'm really excited to have him on Noble Warrior. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, and I think the best place to start may be starting from um, how we met. Okay. 2010. Oh. We, you and I, we met at the TED conference very oh. briefly. You probably don't remember. Okay. It's okay. And I believe you guys, uh, uh, Bill Gates was sort of in the okay, okay, and then he may have shown the mosquito zapping machine that you invented on that. So let conference. me think. So in that, so I think that year, that was pro that was the year that we showed the bug zapper on stage mm -hmm. ourselves. Mm -hmm. So that was a that was like one probably one of the most ridiculous demos ever done at TED. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I probably spent like a quarter million dollars on the demo <laughs> because it's Ted. So you want to make sure it works. So we had like, we had like, uh, we had a, like a PhD farming mosquitoes in a hotel near <laughs> Ted for like a week or two before the event. <laughs> I flew down on Nathan Mirvold's private jet with mosquitoes uh, of our own from the lab from Seattle, just to make sure, because we hadn't tested on different kinds of mosquitoes or ones born in different places. I mean, there's a lot of things that weren't tested. So, you know, we had to control for all of it. We had um, never shown it outside the lab. You know, mm -hmm. it was only a, it was a demo that we had only done in the lab. And then um, we were trying to do it live on stage. And so you got to get everything to work. And so, uh, I, and I didn't do most of the work, you know, the, the team did almost everything. Um, uh, Eric Johansson in particular worked night and day to make that happen on stage of Ted. And so the, but yeah, for people who don't know the machine can find mosquitoes flying around and then sample their wing beat frequency with a laser. Mm -hmm. And from that, it can sort out mosquitoes from other bugs but it can also tell the species and the gender mm -hmm. so if it finds a female anopheles defensi which is the one that mostly is carrying malaria in sub-saharan africa and that's the one we want to kill if it finds those bugs then it can shoot them down with a lethal laser mm -hmm. and so that's what we wanted to show the, uh, at ted so it was a kind of, so that was nathan's ted talk we showed some of our other lab projects but of course that's the one everyone remembers yeah yeah, yeah. i mean okay yeah. so so let's let's go down that that path real yeah. quick. number one when i first saw it i was like oh this is ridiculous no <laughs> way they could do it and then you did it and yeah it, great. like jaw oh, dropping awesome. moments that's so awesome good yeah yeah <laughs> so so it's well planned well planned that's um, great all right so you and i would talk a little briefly about you know um the nature of good ideas. How do you evaluate a truly good idea? And you and I, we talked earlier that when someone immediately tell you that's a good idea, chances are it's a mediocre, it's a, you know, it's not bad. But the response was, that's a stupid idea. However polite they say it. Yeah. That's when you really pay attention. Can you say more about well, I, how you yeah. thought, like, I'm sure... That idea wasn't the only idea, right? It's probably like mm -hmm. out of hundreds of things that you guys thought about. Oh, How yeah. did you evaluate the quality of an idea well, to pursue it? What we would do is, so, you know, what we would do in that context, so this is at the Intellectual Ventures Lab. 
So in those years when the, where the bug zapper comes from, we were trying to turn invention into a kind of team sport. And a lot of invention, there's kind of two major classes of invention. So one is maybe like an engineer working at Hewlett Packard is going to figure out how to make a faster, cheaper, better inkjet printer because they've been doing it for decades. They know everything about inkjet and they know exactly where the opportunity to like make an improvement on that is. Um, that's, that's awesome. Um, but, uh, we wouldn't do that. Uh, we would work on the other class of invention, which is like, what comes after inkjet, <laughs> uh, could be something crazy that uses, you know, whatever curve jumping, paradigm there shifting. Go. There you go. Yeah. Into New reality. And, and the, and a lot of times that kind of invention, it's a, it, you know, I often said it would be like a crazy hair in a garage with a DeLorean, you know, it's like that, that's kind of what you, where those things come from, you know, it's, it's lone geniuses who spent more time on noodling on something that nobody understood for than anyone ever believed was possible. And, and that just doesn't scale very well. And for a couple reasons, but and we can talk about that later. But the point is what we were trying to do is say, okay, what if we took those kind of guys or those kind of people, put them all in the room together and then have them bounce off each other. And so we built this stable of about 150 prolific inventors from around the world. And what we would do is we'd find somebody with a problem. You know, ideally you want somebody who really understands what's not working and where the high value problem is. And if you get that person, surround them with a nuclear physicist, a laser expert, a chemist, I'm a computer hacker, you know, collectively we would know the cutting edge in every area in science and technology. And so the inventions that we were looking for are the ones at the borders, you know, or in, in the space in between those disciplines. And that's why you get something like lasers for mosquitoes where, you know, entomologists probably don't hang out with laser experts that often. In fact, even we thought it was a dumb idea. We laughed about it at first. We're like, oh, that's, that'd be funny. But one of the inventors in the room had worked on uh, Star Wars oh, for yeah. Reagan. So, okay, yeah. Before you go further. Yeah. Walk me through the yeah. moment that idea was conceived. Yeah. People laugh about it. Mm -hmm. You're like, hey, this is actually not bad. So just walk, like, yeah, go yeah, into sure, that good. moment. So, so in that context, you know, you got a dozen people. We wouldn't say, as other people do, that there are no bad ideas. Um, we think there are some bad ideas. <laughs> in fact, we think those are some bad ideas. But, but what we'd say is if you want to shoot down my idea, you got to come up with one that's better. Oh, that's the rule. <laughs> that's the rule. I like that. That's the I rule. like that. So you can, you can, and, and these are all people, you know, these people are chosen because they don't mind, you know, shouting each other down and telling each other how stupid they are, even though they all have seven PhDs. So, the, so it's a, it's a good, you know, lovingly hostile environment <laughs> well okay so double yeah. double click on that real quick sure um intelligent people typically have a pretty big ego right let's Often. say if you have seven phds you're a prolific inventor <laughs> right. chances are your ego could fill the room yeah now you have a team of these yeah prolific inventors right uh it's unfathomable for me to not seeing ego clashing with each other right. and so forth. Exactly. I mean, I have 
you know, a bunch of patents with Bill Gates, but I can't be a psychophant. I can't like say, oh, well, Bill's smarter than me because, you know, I have to be able to defend my idea and tell him his idea is dumb. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and same with Nathan. So Mirvold, you've done that. Oh, yeah. Bill, Nathan Mirvold, who's notoriously, you know, probably the smartest living human I got. And, and then, you know, 10 other people that they rounded up who they think are smarter than them. So, yeah, we have to be. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work for everybody. If you're timid or if you're easily offended or any of that, this this is probably not the right context for you. That's OK. A lot of people are good at other things. But for the for what we were doing, that was a really really great dynamic because so, so could, it wasn't gentle it wasn't polite I mean, it wasn't mean okay so it wasn't right? mean yeah and that's something yeah. i think a lot of people don't understand like if you go to go to dinner with a family of italians you're gonna think that i mean they're it looks like they're arguing with each other all night and you're like why are you guys arguing <laughs> no we're not arguing we're just talking here we're passionate <laughs> they're passionate so yeah, it's a different vibe right and so nobody Nobody's upset after after spending all day in an invention session arguing about about uh, you know you know about whether a laser is going to work or not. So but, but no, okay, yeah. I know I keep interrupting. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, right, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but 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 even amongst family, quote unquote, yeah. blood, right? Yeah, feelings still get hurt. Oh yeah, right. And sure. and you know egos get spruced. Yeah. So. How do you make sure that these really intelligent super egos come together, argue for the sake of for the best idea wins, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I, I hear that. Yeah. But to ensure that, hey, underneath all of that, we're still like, you know, friends and we're we're collegial with each other. We don't, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, attack your character as a yeah. human being. Like, how do you ensure that that doesn't happen? Uh, I don't think we tried very hard. I mean, if you, I mean, I, I mean, look, it's like when you watch footage of like NBA players, um, practicing, uh-huh. you know, they're talking shit each all the time with uh-huh. their own teammates. Yep. And it's obviously to drive them to be better. You know, you watch the videos of Kobe Bryant yeah. practicing. It's like. Everybody else only practices twice a day. I practice four times a day. Who do you think is going to be better? You know, <laughs> well, uh, so, you know, he's talking shit about his teammates. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're not going to get in that room if you are, if you are sensitive to those kinds of things. And even if I mean, I remember I remember times when, you know, those guys are telling me my ideas are dumb and I'm like. They just don't understand how smart my idea was. Right? And I'm like, <laughs> you know, so I, <laughs> and, you know, sometimes I was right. Sometimes they were right, you know, and, and time will tell. But it doesn't, you know, it's, yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't think, I mean, I understand what you're asking. And for a lot of people, it would be important to solve that. And if you were trying to be very conscientious and egalitarian and, and take care of people's feelings, you, you, you know, those would be important things for us. You, you're professional intellectuals. It's a professional, yeah, that's yeah, your job. You're trying to get at the best idea. Right. You don't take things personally. Right. Nobody in the NBA is going to ask you how you're feeling. Like, it's not part of the game. You know? Okay. So I, that's kind of how I think. I'm I not saying you. we're the NBA, but we were the NBA of inventors in a way. For 10 years, we were the most prolific inventors in the world. You know, we have 6,000 patents on our own inventions mm. because we were able to scale up that, that, you know, that type of invention I was describing. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that we should have been the best, 
in some sense, we were uncontested. We figured out a process that was effective. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's scaled. Maybe, you know, I like to think we're smart, but in, you could argue about whether we're smart. But that process could be used by other teams of inventors. Other people could take that process and scale up their own invention work. And that's what I think is really valuable to learn, mm -hmm. um, independent of what you think about us and, and how big of a jerks we are for, for shouting each other down and over, over a laser you know, <laughs> or whatever. I, I interrupted. Continue okay. with the story, please. Oh, so, yes. Um, so, oh, what I was going to say, what's very interesting about that is in that, that particular one, just because it's an easy example, um, we laughed about it. And then one of the guys in the room had worked on Star Wars for Reagan, mm -hmm. which was this idea to, um, have lasers in space that could shoot down missiles. Uh, and it just sounds like total science fiction, but we spent, I mean, the U.S. spent like 40 or $50 billion on this idea before. And they were able to prove that it would work. And what he said is, oh, well, we already spent $50 billion doing it in space with lasers or figuring out if we could. And in this context, the, the mosquito is a larger target than the missile would have been. In the relative scale. At the relative scale. Got it. And so... We started to think, oh, well, maybe it would work. <laughs> it sounds cool. Let's try it. So we um, hired. Okay, hold on. Oh, yeah, yeah. Quick, uh -huh. quick zoom in in that moment. Was there someone, you know, I don't know, that usually in a group there's like a hierarchical thing, right? So okay. maybe like Nathan spoke like, yeah. hey, let's green light that idea. So everyone goes along or was more of like a group, you know, consensus <laughs> thing, majority rules. Like how, how does that work? Well, in those days, this was the early days of the Intellectual Ventures Lab. We um, hadn't really defined decision-making processes like that, so we were pretty free to do whatever we thought was cool. Okay. And, um, you know, that's the kind of thing that works early um, in the life cycle of something. It, it Even for us, it wasn't, it wasn't true 10 years later, but in those days like whatever we thought was cool, we'd go do it. So that was mm -hmm. one we thought was cool. Awesome. Um, and you know, Nathan certainly influences that some, or, um, I don't know that, I mean, there may be a, a couple other people who might've influenced which things we thought were worth pursuing. So, so, so the reason why I asked that question, by yeah. the way, I came from my academic background oh, Okay. and in, in academia, yeah. you need to, you know, have like committees agreeing to right. give you the budget to pursue. Yeah. So usually even that process just take, months if yeah, not years right yeah. i wouldn't want to work in that kind of process um and uh, you could say in some sense you know we developed some process like that over time but um but in the early days we didn't have that and it's very efficient and i'm not saying it's the best you know you maybe probably make we i mean we definitely made some uh questionable decisions about what to waste time on but but we you got to remember like our what give, give us like one example of you know if you can talk um, yeah, about well, it sure. yeah well sure um like oh man, in hindsight it was a you know yeah, not, not right. so efficient okay so like time. one i remember was we had we had this idea for how to cure cancer mm. and what we learned was that um there's a a lot of times when you die of cancer what happened is your body developed a cancer somewhere and that doesn't kill you. 
what happens is it a little bit of it breaks off into your bloodstream, circulates around in your bloodstream, latches on somewhere else, metastasizes there, and grows, and that's what kills you. Mm-hmm. So, um, so this, and so in some sense, like a cancer growing, everybody's got cancer in their body somewhere. Like mm-hmm. it's just whether or not it gets out of control. Yeah. So this, you know, so if you got cancer growing in one place, you know, your body's kind of handling it fine, but if it latches on and metastasizes somewhere else, that's when it's a risk. So what we had learned was on average, these circulating tumor cells, as they're called, would circulate the bloodstream a million times before they latch on. Mm. And we're like thinking, hey, got a million shots on goal. Mm -hmm. Let's try to find them. Yeah. So we have a bunch of inventions for essentially putting a fiber optic into your bloodstream, Mm -hmm. taking a photograph of every blood cell, Mm. every cell in your blood, Mm. and using machine vision to analyze it and figure out if it's a circulating tumor cell. And if it is, Mm. shoot it with a laser like you always do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which we thought sounded like a lot of fun. So we spent like a year on this trying to do the math and then, you know, make some prototypes and figure out how to take a picture of every blood cell. And we, we eventually figured out that, um, you know, I could take an image of every blood cell and analyze it. It would take me about 150 years per, per patient. <laughs> and you'd have to be hooked up to a machine the whole time. So it's not... Oh, the processing The time. process because of, because it's like, it's trillion cells or something. I forgot how many, but you know, yeah. it's, it's a lot. Uh, and um, so it wasn't, you know, we thought, well, we could paralyze it, parallelize it. There might be ways to improve that. But along, so we spent like a year, I mean, doing other things too, but you know, we spent a year on this project. I called it microfishing. Mm, and, um, good name. and what happened is uh, eventually we, I don't know who we talked to. We talked to some experts because there are people who are experts in these things that aren't us. Like, I don't know anything about cancer. So, and then, and eventually somebody said, no, that's not true. A, a circulating tumor cell often doesn't make it around more than once. Mm. <laughs> you know, and, and you start thinking about it, you're like, well, yeah, that makes sense. Cause it's probably going to get stuck in the capillaries and the lungs or something, you know, like why, why would it be a million times? And so the more we looked into it, the more we realized like this, that fundamental premise that we started with was probably not true. So no one like validated that idea? It was just Well, like we did thought? validate it after a year <laughs> of working on it. But, you know, it it was I mean, it was it would have been cool if it worked. I mean, I think there's probably some merit there in different ways, but you know, we have a bunch of patents on how to do it. How to analyze that, cells with yeah, uh, right. optic fiber. Um so, you know, and that might have uses in other cases. But anyway, it was it was a, a boondoggle and maybe if we'd had a committee and gotten some experts and had them weigh in, we could have uh, figured out ahead of time that it wasn't going to work. But I would argue that like the cost of the committee and the process of decision making in that context wouldn't have been better. You know, I mean, so I don't know. We're the thing to remember is like we're really, really, really good at killing ideas. Okay, like so, so yeah. tell us the process. Yeah, of so like if how you, you kill ideas? Yeah, you kill ideas by, you know, by having somebody you know point out a a fundamental flaw in your thinking right a fundamental problem that you're not taking into account a lot of times those are pretty obvious and so it's easy to kill ideas you know it's like oh you could make um 
you could make, uh, I don't know, let's think of a dumb idea. You could make um, in, inflatable sailboats that, um, you know, that were filled with hydrogen. And so they could fly over the land. <laughs> okay. Can you come up with any reasons why that's a dumb idea? Uh, I'm just laughing at the ridiculousness right. of the idea. I just made that up. Yeah, but absolutely. I contend it's a really good idea. Because mm. right now, sailboats obviously suck because they can only go over the water. Mm -hmm. But imagine if your sailboat could also float over the land. Mm. You park it in your backyard. Pretty sweet. Mm. Or on your roof. Mm. Like a helicopter. Mm. Hydrogen is cheap and lighter than air. So it just floats like a, like a Zeppelin. Pretty cool, right? And, you get, and it's wind-powered. Zero carbon, yeah, cheaper than a Tesla. I don't see what's not to like. The well, the, the weight bearing capacity, the okay, might area, need, the weight area might, of the cells it, needed. You, to, you might need a lot of helium. Yeah, okay, so to, to cover to 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 be to to be usable to, to carry any kind of weight. Yeah, things like that. You know what the Hindenburg is? Oh yeah, that's right. There's that slight problem that slight it could problem. explode. Yeah, good idea. In a fiery death, which you know is not something sailors are used to dealing with. So, yeah, so, all right, fine, bad idea, dumb. Well, maybe we could make, catch it up. Can we make it better? Well, we use helium instead. Mm. And you need twice as big of a inflatable with helium, roughly. Um, but it wouldn't be flammable. See, mm. now we have a, a sailboat that's not flammable that can fly over the land, too. Pretty sweet, right? Mm. So now we're, like, lovingly trying to kill the idea shoot holes in it, see if there's anything left standing. Any reason you still don't like the idea? Or do you want an inflatable sailboat now? Uh, I mean, you know, the, the after I watched the uh, Pixar movie Up, like, uh, it seems pretty cool. Right, it seems pretty cool, right? Yeah, okay, yeah, and people, people obviously, yeah, I mean, a, a hot air balloon is kind of like a a budget version of a of a inflatable helium sailboat. That's right. Um. To, to source, to produce helium at that size. Oh, yeah, that's a well. problem. Well, yeah, you know, here's costly. the thing. Well, the thing about helium is it's one of the few elements on Earth. Well, not few, but it's an important element that we cannot make. Mm. We cannot manufacture helium. We have no way of making more. Mm. There's a finite amount of it on Earth, and it's leaking out every day and floating into space. Mm. We're putting it temporarily in party balloons. Mm but then it goes into space. Mm. So we lose helium every day. And it's a very important element. We need it for making microchips. We need it for a bunch of things that we do industrially. So wasting helium is a really bad idea. Like, mm. folks, if you have kids, get them something made out of plastic instead of a helium balloon for their birthday. <laughs> um, we need the helium. <laughs> so there's a, yeah, so, that's, so that's, a, that's a problem, all right? So now we shut another hole in this idea. So, you know, we keep doing that. And if at the end of the day we run out of, you know, we can, we can patch up all the holes and we run out of ideas for how to kill it. So quick question. Yeah. Quick, quick pause there. There's a technique with different color hats, basically. Okay. During the innovative creative process. So, for example, if you're like a, I don't know, if you're, you're wearing like a black hat, mm -hmm. your job is to be you know, uh, devil's advocate. Okay. You, you're always shooting now ideas. Yeah. It doesn't matter how good at ideas. Yeah. If you're wearing yellow, 
you know, I don't know, I'm just making stuff up. You're yep. coming up with, you know, doubling that up or you're you're wearing red, you're like a cheerleader role. Okay. So that's kind of like one technique to do that. Mm. Uh, but in this case, in the discussion where you're shooting down ideas, everyone's trying to shoot down wearing black hat, essentially. Well, I guess we're all just wearing all the hats at the same time. Okay. I mean, Got you kind of want, that's kind of why the rule of, of shooting down my idea, but having to come up with one that's better is effective. It's, it mm. keeps the ball moving in the right direction. It's kind of like uh, the uh, uh, improvisational rule number yeah. one. Yeah. Yes, and. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's like that. Yeah, yeah basically like that. it's like that. And, yeah, yeah. and maybe that's, uh, you know, because you probably don't want a whole room of people just saying, nope. Lame. That sucks. That's that, yeah. It kills that the sounds like I'm describing a committee now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. What did they contribute? Uh, they said no to everything. Right? <laughs> um, so anyway, the whole point of all that describing all that is just say, you know, that that whole process was able to yield an ability to invent at a larger scale. Um, I, I contend that it could work for other teams of inventors. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know if that's really happening in other places. Um, and I think it's important because we really do need to scale up our ability to invent new technologies. And So from your perspective, because you're a hacker and now investor, right? So why do you think there aren't other institutions trying to duplicate, you know, the mm. similar organized efforts of to scale up inventions, yeah. to focus on deep tech. And we're going to talk about that in a bit, but, you know, things like that. Well, do you know anybody besides me who has a business card that says inventor on it? I know a number. You do? Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, it's pretty rare, though. <laughs> I mean, do but you know I'm, anybody uh, with a business card that says, like, real estate agent? Lots. Yeah. Lots and go. lots. So, yes. so it's a... It's not a legitimate career choice. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and if you think about it, you know, we have scientific community. That's basic research. Yep. They're, I mean, not optimally, but fairly well funded. We have a system down for funding them. And their job is to discover how the world works, right? And understand the universe and everything in it. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got your you know, entrepreneurs, their job is to like make a business, make a, find a, a market, make a product, satisfy a customer, all that kind of stuff. In the middle is invention. And the job of inventor is to take the output of basic research, the output of science and ask yourself, you know, does this change anything humans have ever done? You know, for me, I'm looking at every new chip, every new sensor, every new algorithm, every scientific discovery that I can comprehend and ask myself, you know, that goes in my brain as like, okay, you know, does this change how we do things? You know, does this help us solve a problem in a faster, cheaper, better, more humane fashion, right? And so sometimes, you know, there's like a big Rubik's cube in my head that sometimes matches up the new, the new discovery to a problem. And that, that's the invention process. And, and so that's not exactly what scientists are supposed to be doing. I mean, sometimes you get invention as a byproduct of science, and sometimes you get an entrepreneur who can invent something. But it's usually not what either of those people are really optimized for. Inventor is kind of its own class. And inventors, you know, we don't have money for them. 
Like we have money for entrepreneurs, lots of it. Like we fund mm -hmm. those guys. We have money for scientists, I'd like more, but there's lots of it. For inventors, zero. Like mm -hmm. There's nobody funding inventors. So that's what we were trying to solve. Mm -hmm. You know, we thought if you could fund inventors, maybe we could scale up this whole thing. And, um, and, and so we were trying to find, you know, different ways of doing that, you know. Okay. So you say it were, you use past tense. Yeah. I, I don't work, uh, for intellectual ventures anymore, but I did for about 12 years. I helped start up that lab and work on these kinds of projects that, that I was talking about. And, um, it was a very unique experience. It was possible because, um, because of, because of Nathan Mirvold and, and his ideas for how to do that. Um, and Nathan had been very successful before with helping build Microsoft. Um, he was CTO there, but afterwards, you know, he wanted to get back to, you know, not, not just doing software, but inventing all kind in all areas in science. And this was a way to, to do that. Do you see now, I mean, after being working in intellectual ventures, now it's starting your own fun. Um, this career path as inventors are now a little bit more substantiated, a little bit more, you know, worked out. No, I don't think so at all. I no. mean, I, that, that was, I started that, you know, what, 15 years ago or something. And I don't think we're any better off now. Mm. Um, why is that? What's missing? Is it the fact, business in some model? Sense, I think we're worse off. Okay. Because when you look at the life cycle of a new technology, you know, by definition, if it's new, um, there's some, some risk there. Mm -hmm. There's some unproven aspect. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of cases, and, the, and there's kind of two major classes of risk. You got your, your market risk, which is, will anybody pay for this thing? Mm -hmm. And then you got technical risk, which is like, is it going to work mm -hmm. in the first place? Mm -hmm. And, um, and what happened, if you look back at in like the 80s, like venture capital in the 80s, which funded things like Apple and Microsoft and, you know, all, all the technology companies that we know, you know, Intel and all that stuff. Those were companies based on technical risk um, and market risk, actually. <laughs> uh, they had both. But, um, but it was the job of venture capitalists to go in there early and sort all that out, you know, fund these things to get started reduce the technical risk, prove that someone would pay for it, that kind of stuff. And, and then, and th that was real venture. That's why it's called venture. It's like, it's almost Shackleton scale mm. venture. Like, mm. it's like you're going out into the unknown and it's probably not going to work and you're likely to die. Um, <laughs> and the reason venture capital works is the money gets spread across usually, you know, 10 different shots on goal. So, you know, it, so hopefully nine of them die, but one of them turns out to be the next Apple or IBM or whatever. So, um, or, you know, Google or whatever's, whatever's big, big enough to pay for the nine failures. So, the, yeah, so the point I'm really trying to make is that venture capital is the industry that we created really over the last like 50, 60 years to enable taking on risk. You know, there's historical precedents for this. I mean, you know, I don't know, like, you know, explorers, 
you know, leaving their home country and looking for mm-hmm. land full of spices and shit. That is also venture. Mm-hmm. Um, venture capital, as we know, it was a way to mitigate the risk and take on technical risk um, for new technologies. Mm-hmm. So that's, I call that, you know, uh, actual tech <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> or that is what enabled a lot of things to get developed and turned into technologies that that thrive that become part of your life that solve problems that you know come into the world and 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 change things and it's a very important development you know um for making that possible and and it's i don't don't know that i need to defend it i mean people can probably see like silicon valley has been very successful (laughs) uh on a global scale because of this dynamic because we invest in things that would sound crazy to any rational business person. And, um, but I think it got perverted over time because of the, because of the success of software. Software is generally applicable. You can use it for almost everything and it will make things better. It will improve the reliability and cost and everything. So you need to use software for everything. But that was so successful and made so much money and was so low cost and arguably low risk that venture capitalists just got hooked on that drip. Mm. Right. So we have a, not got a venture capital industry right now. We have a software capital industry Mm. and that, you know, that industry is overwhelmingly aimed to just apply software to everything. And you can see it. I mean, the valuations are crazy in enterprise software and iPhone apps, and you have an unlimited amount of money for what I call sass holes, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, because that's the overhyped segment and a lot of competition for those deals. Meanwhile, if you invent an awesome new technology that can save lives, that can reduce costs by 10x, that can you know, make something carbon free that can, you know, all that stuff gets through research should be commercialized, but involves a little bit of hardware. There's nobody to fund you. You know, Mm. all VCs will tell you like, oh, we don't do hardware. Why? It's hard. Says in the name, hardware. (laughs) We do software. So that's their, that's their business. Right. And Mm. And they're hooked on those fast, you know, software projects are less costly that you can turn them around in five, six, seven years instead of eight, nine, ten years. You know, there's a there's a lot of uh, a lot of things to like. Mm. And so that's you know, you can't blame them. We need to do that stuff. That's a good business model. But it has it has uh, steered venture capital away from you know working on actual technology because there are a lot of problems you will not solve just with software. Yeah. Right? And the, and it turns out they're important problems, right? Mm-hmm. So you got energy, water, waste, sanitation, mm-hmm. education, how do you feed all these people? You know, there's just a lot of problems that we need to be working on and software is only a piece of the puzzle. So anyway, so that's how I think about it and um and I Can think, you further define sure. deep tech real quick? Yeah, so deep tech is the count that's that's what i work on that's what i think of as what i call the actual tech you could you could get a sense of it by thinking of uh everything you know as 
shallow tech. <laughs> shallow tech is, you know, uh, I don't know, Snapchat, um, you know, iPhone apps, you know, to have like weed delivered to your dorm room by drones, maybe, I don't know. Um, but deep tech is the hard stuff, you know, it's, it's things that require advanced physics or new areas in science or some chemistry or some biology. I mean, there's, there, there are things that, that, I mean, you could almost say deep tech is anything that's not exclusively software. Um, I see. And that's not a perfect definition. I mean, I do some software, but it, it's like when it's fundamental breakthroughs. Like if you have a new... What's the core thing, right? Is it software yeah. is it, you know, or is it outside yeah. of software? Yeah, or is it. It a, is it a technological advancement, mm. right? You can't... I mean, you point at Uber or and say, well, what did they invent? I mean, what about Airbnb? What about Snapchat? These are our heroes? What did Facebook invent? If there had been no Mark Zuckerberg, do you think we'd have something kind of like Facebook? You know, I bet we would. So I'm not really convinced that these are these are technology companies, right? They're they're software companies, they're opportunists who made possibly a good product or a good business, and they certainly made a lot of money, and that's all great, but we shouldn't confuse that in our minds as technology. Mm. Right. That's that's a different thing. And so we don't we I think it's a, some failing of the English language. Like we don't have a way of differentiating mm. um the so-called tech industry from technology industry so what do you think is missing in terms of helping the deep tech you know is it tech is it community is it uh, uh business models is it you know organizational structures is it you know communication is it none storytelling? of those, none of those no, oh storytelling we should re revisit but none of those things um but I do say, think all of those things are good examples of things that we got really good at in Silicon Valley that the rest of the world should be trying to emulate. All those things you described. Mm -hmm. there's, there's a big problem with, with, um, with technology development in general because um, it overwhelmingly happens in, on the West Coast. Um, not even the U.S., just the West Coast and a little bit on the East Coast and very little in the middle. Um, that's not because there aren't smart people there or because there isn't good uh, technology coming out of there or even good labs or universities. I mean, we have all those things. What Silicon Valley has is a culture that is supportive of doing new things, mm. right? And that has been the thing that is missing. I've traveled all over the world to places where they claim are going to be the Silicon Valley of Latin America or the Silicon Valley of Europe or whatever. And it's all bullshit. Mm. And the reason is they're, they're not, they're not creating the most important thing, which is this supportive dynamic around doing new things. So for example, um, if you have a startup in Italy and it fails, they open a criminal investigation. Really? If what? I, yeah. If I have a startup in California and it fails, VCs are calling me the next day to find out what I'm doing next. Uh huh. Not not only that, the same VCs that funded me in the thing that just failed are calling to find out what I'm doing next. Uh -huh. Right? Because in this context, we understand that it's a, it's it's not a company that matters so much it's the ecosystem that matters the ecosystem overall 
thrives by getting a lot of shots on goal, a lot of experiments. Each startup you could think of as a million dollar experiment. When you do enough of those, you find the hits. It is a hits business. And nominally, most VCs think that they can win with a 10 to one hit ratio, right? So that means you're gonna invest in 10 things, nine of them are not gonna make them money. That 10th one is gonna make enough to pay for all the failures, which is very important to understand if you're an entrepreneur. Taking money from a VC, even me, is worse than taking money from a loan shark. Okay, same like a loan shark only wants 2x return on their investment, right? If you're going to give me a 2x return on my investment, I can't work with you. I need you to pay for my other nine failures, <laughs> right? I need a 10x return before I'm making money. So it's, uh, I mean, I won't come break your legs, but you know, it's, uh, it's not a great, it's not a great interest rate. But it's so important because for the kinds of projects that we're talking about, for actual technology projects, there is no other money. Like that's just what it takes. You know, that's, we have to do it that way. And it's the only money you're gonna get is, is money that expects a, you to be a really big hit. So what I'm hearing, what you say is, the ecosystem is what's missing to, deep, to support yeah. deep tech. Right, so no, I'm not, I'm not saying that we have the ecosystem, but the ecosystem mm. is distracted. <laughs> mm. It's distracted by the shiny software project. Um, you know, you can see these hype cycles now that were distracted by SaaS apps last year. Now they're distracted by Web3 this year. You know, there, there's, there's always a shiny, you know, new hotness that's, that's got them distracted because they're, you know, they're investing from a primarily financial um, perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, again, it's, it's obviously working. Venture is the, is the highest performing asset class that there is. Um, and these guys are making money. So, it, so they're doing their job. What I think is, um, you know, I'm a human who's working as a venture capitalist and I need to be good at both as a human. What I see is we have problems in the world that are our job to solve. Uh, it's not up to the chipmunks to solve global warming. It's our fucking problem. So, um, so, okay, so say more about yeah. that because you almost sound like a moral obligation to do that. So yeah, say it's, more a, it's a moral obligation. That's what I think. I mean, I'm not uh, not trying to moralize too much, but I am trying to moralize one thing, which is that, you know, we made 8 billion humans. Um, we made no additional planets. So our job is to figure out how are we going to take care of that, mm -hmm. right? If you are one of the people here on Earth especially if you're one of the people who either was made by other humans or, or is making more humans, you know, you should, the, the total cost of ownership involves like figure out how do you take care of all these people? And, um, okay. So yeah. let's, okay. So let's go into that a bit. Yeah. Cause you and I, we had talked a little bit. Oh, um, it's a very privileged oh. positioning. I mean, I agree with you. Number mm. one. So let me just mm -hmm. say that first. Sure. And at the same time, you know, obviously very smart, 
you have lots of money, you have accomplished a lot, you work with Jeff Bezos, or Bill Gates, like Nathan Merrimals and all these. So, so um, do you feel that positioning is more important than the privileged or do you feel like everyone ought to think about it? Kind of like, a, what's his name? Um, the lifeboat guy, I can't remember his name. The light bulb guy, Edison? Uh, no, not Edison, oh. Life, lifeboat. Lifeboat. Yeah, he oh, was an architect, he, he created the, oh man, Buckminster Fuller, I oh, think that's. Oh yeah, Bucky Fuller, yeah, Bucky sure. Bucky Fuller, he talked right. about basically, oh. we live on this spaceship. Yeah. It's everyone's responsibility yeah, sure. to take care of everyone. Anyways, um, well, I, I won't try to speak for Buckminster Fuller. I, but for me, um, I mean, I think it's it's everybody's job, mm -hmm. right? Now, I'm not trying to um, call out anybody in particular. If you are in a position where you're, you know, being attacked by malaria, you're living in extreme poverty. You're trying to take care of your family. I'm not vilifying you for not worrying about global warming. That's not at all the case. Um, but for me, yeah, I think the world has invested a lot in me. Mm. You know, I mean, I didn't, didn't go to college, but I feel like a lot of education certainly was uh, spent on me. I mean, millions and millions of dollars were spent on my education in the context of companies that failed mm. that I worked at. Um, not all of them, but a, but a lot of them. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's money spent on, that's education for me. You know, mm -hmm. I learned a lot in that context on somebody else's dime. Um, a lot of jet fuel has been spent on me. Uh, you know, so, uh, I mean, a lot of, uh, a lot of really, really good cheeseburgers have been spent on me. So just the world <laughs> invested a lot in me. Mm. So what I think is I should be trying to return something commensurate with the investment in me. Mm. right so and and so and by the way yeah i know that you when you and i were talking in uh. the pre-podcasting conversation you had mentioned something along the line of you want to be better ancestor for yeah future generations well that is how i think about it you know this is this is i want to i want we're playing a long game here you know we're really lucky to be here we're lucky to be alive at this moment in time where things are actually better for humans on average than they've ever been in a billion years right and so it's that's super exciting but the, but it's not over you know we're here because a sacrifice is made by our ancestors you know much more difficult and painful sacrifices than we're ever going to be asked to make so we're a lot of people, you know, again, if you, you do what you got to do, I'm not blaming anyone in particular, but I can speak for myself, which is say, you know, look, I'm in, I'm in a, in a position where I can hopefully contribute something commensurate, uh, say that word because with, with the investment that has been made in me and you know, I didn't choose that necessarily. I'm some of it I did, but, but that means I could, if if I just leave the world slightly better than I found it, that's pretty fucking awesome. Mm -hmm. And that I think is a good, you know, if you just wanted to have like a, you know, a life philosophy and a tweet, go with that one. Because, because, 
you don't need to do much, but if you are a net drain on the world, um, you know, I, I think you should possibly revisit your life choices, you know, and, and, mm. you know, it, I gotta say, I mean, it's not that I'm immune to looking around and noticing a lot of people seem to be a net drain on society and the world, but you know, more, I don't know what their situation is. So again, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking for me. Um, and anybody who, who wants to, you know, think along these lines. Well, but, those, those that listen yeah. to Noble Warriors, this is part of one of the, the, mm. the tenants. Oh, I see. Like, okay, well, how, how could we be a, uh, net positive contributor yeah. to the world. And then I know that you and I had some semantic arguments about oh. the point of uh, legacy. Oh, because when we were discussing in your mind, your definition of legacy was more self-glorification. Oh. But in the context of Noble Warrior, oh. legacy is something that we leave behind as a positive contributor. Well, you know, that's a... I, yeah, to, I don't know that we need to argue about it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's my... Uh, vernacular but whatever i mean it's i don't expect anyone to remember me you know mm -hmm. more than like a couple months after i'm dead mm -hmm. <laughs> um so in my mind legacy sort of speaks to that that's not really my uh thing but you could certainly use it in a context where you know maybe you would want to look at it and say okay if people were looking at my track record 100 years from now would they be you know, would they be inspired or proud of what the choices I made or something? That might be how you think of it. Mm -hmm. um, even that I'm not sure is a, is a really good driving metric because it, it, it could lead one to virtue signaling in the same mm -hmm. way that people are doing on a, um, in, on a shorter time horizon now, mm. you know, so you end up with a lot of people who are doing the thing that makes the, that looks good on paper or looks good on, the internet but isn't moving the needle so real quick yeah. pause real yeah. quick pause so there's an idea of intrinsic motivator mm. versus extrinsic motivator okay, sure what so extrinsic motivator is like how good do i look to others yeah when i'm serving others i make sure that i put an instagram photo and video to make sure that everyone sees that i'm doing good okay that's the extrinsic what i'm talking about is yeah. this this intrinsic desire okay. even if no one sees it but if it makes me feel good, mm -hmm. I'm going to do it anyway. Okay, well, if that if that fits within the notion of legacy, then, you know, we're probably on the same page. Um, I, I mean, what I'm trying to pick apart is mm -hmm. when you look on the longer time horizon, which is a rare exercise for most people, I think, mm -hmm. just look beyond your lifetime. You know, try, you know, a good place to start is 100 years. On, and, and if you evaluate the, your choices about what we should be doing in the world on a 100-year on a time horizon, you're going to get different answers than whatever you're doing now. Um, certainly. Can you give us a concrete yeah, example? Sure. What does so, that mean? So, you know, it's very interesting. People often call me a futurist, which I don't know. Um, I, I probably would never say that. Well, but, you look like one with your, with oh, your glasses. Oh, thanks. Um, <laughs> Uh, if you, if you think about what does it mean to like, I mean, and I don't know what futurist really does, but they, but the point is if you're trying to predict the future, it's very difficult to predict. It's not, it's not actually that difficult to predict what's going to happen. Technically, it's harder to predict the timeline. 
right? So for example, you can look out a hundred years from now, are we going to be driving F-150s that burn gas? No, right? How long is it going to take? Five years or 20? No, you know, it's harder to pinpoint, right? Before Tesla, you would have said it's going to take a hundred (laughs) years. You know, now that we have Tesla, oh, it might only be five. So there's a, you can apply that to a lot of things. You know, a hundred years from now, will the U.S. dollar be the reserve currency on this planet? Eh, or will it be Bitcoin? Oh, definitely Bitcoin. <laughs> like, you know, like, I, how is that going to be 10 years or is it going to be 90 years? I don't know. Because the reason, the reason is humans can, can screw it up for something measured in decades, but not centuries. So if you think about a technology, any technology, if it's developed and it works and it's better, humans can get in the way of adopting it for a generation or two, but it's really hard for them to resist adopting it in the long run. When It's not like we invented the wheel and then thought, oh, that's cute for the kids, but I'm just going to keep walking. Like, no, we actually, you know, well, actually probably did do that for like, for, for a couple hundred years, we're like, oh, those funky wheel people, kill them. <laughs> um, and, then, uh, and then we eventually adopt the wheel and nest. So every technology that's better does get adopted, but humans fuck it up in the short run with, you know, um, you know, sometimes it's, it's a lot of times it's a power struggle, but contextualized mm-hmm. as religion or regulatory or, or, or whatever. So Mm-hmm. You know, that's so that's how I think about things. That's how I cheat. I just look out and say, okay, if we're starting from scratch and, we, and it was 100 years from now, would we still do things the way we're doing them? Mm. Or would we do it this new way that I, that we're considering? Mm. So that's kind of like your first principle yeah, almost. Right. So instead of looking at scratch off everything starting today, yeah. you kind of fast forward 100 years mm-hmm. and look backwards and say, hmm. I, what would a hundred years be like? Exactly. And if, uh, uh, and if the answer is kind of like, obviously that's how we would do it. Then you can kind of start backing out from there and say, okay, well, how could I make it a shorter timeline? And mm-hmm. can I get that hundred years down to 10? Because mm-hmm. if I can get a hundred years down to 10, then I got something I can invest in. Mm-hmm. Then I got something that I can, if I can see, if I can connect the dots and see that blue line on Google maps to success, in something like 10 years mm. to get to an obviously better solution, that's something I could invest in. Then I could go and say, all right, let's build this company. Let's put the money in to make this tech. Let's go get going now. If I, if I go from 100 years, I'm like, oh, it's still going to take 50. Well, I can't invest in that because that's not – I'm not going to be around to, mm. to make the fun. See through. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's kind of my process. And, um, and, but you could apply it personally, right? Because if you ask yourself about the things you care about, like, well, I obviously care about me, care about my kid a little bit, um, <laughs> grandkids don't got them, don't want them, don't care, but you know, maybe you do. Um, but, but I still want the world to trend correctly. I want my daughter to live in a world that's more awesome than the one I live in. Mm-hmm. Right? I would want that for her. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of these things take longer than a lifetime 
to affect. So I got to get started now mm-hmm. on solving the problems that are going to suck for her in 30 years. So I think that, you know, for most people, it wouldn't be hard to kind of, you know, tune your thinking to be a, on a somewhat longer time horizon. And, that, and so that's where better ancestors comes from. You know, I believe that, you know, you got to, you got to cover your existential needs, mm-hmm. right? You got to, you got to get a roof over your head. You got to feed your kids. You got to do you look at Maslow's, do you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs sort of as a general well, heuristic to like well, I have ex- at times existential type things? Yeah, I have at times because um, for different reasons. I mean, with I think that's a so Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a way of framing what really what humans need to thrive, what they need to be happy, mm-hmm. and if you look at that it's usually represented as a pyramid. I don't think that was at Maslow's idea, but anyway, the bottom half of that is, is physical needs, mm-hmm. safety, physiology, food, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, water, the, you know, sleep. Um, you go a little higher, you get to things like, you know, um, you know, you need housing and I don't know, like sex, you know, for, for reproduction, all that kind of stuff. But so all of these kinds of things, health, um, safety, all those things there on the bottom half of that pyramid are, they're the things you need just, for, just, uh, I call them like quantity of life. <laughs> like, mm. You know, those are things that quantity. Yeah, we need to keep, we can, and that's what technology is really able to help with right now. We can mm. keep you alive longer. We can make you healthier. We can make it possible to have more kids. We can make it possible for you to, you know, eat better and sleep better and all those kinds of things. That's what technology is working on. Mm. We're solving those problems at an accelerating clip, and it's amazing. It's awesome. Like, those are, like you and I exist because of technologies that solved those kinds of problems, mm-hmm. right? As an example, like 400 million people died of smallpox mm-hmm. before we invented vaccination, mm-hmm. right? Like these are the reasons we're here. Um, so if you go to the top half of the pyramid, you know, that's what I call quality of life problems. And these mm-hmm. are, you know, sexual intimacy and family and friends and, you know, having some kind of creative outlet, all these kinds of things. Mm. Those are not things that technology is helping with at all. I may argue a little bit on that. You could point at calm and mindfulness apps yeah. and shit like that, but basically, so shit like that. sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little dubious. I think people are being a little too mindful and not working enough. Oh, um, if you think you need to do yoga, you probably just need to like take a shit and get back to work. Um, uh, but that's just a like cultural a difference. Okay, yeah. So, but look, it, it helps some people. But the, but the point is, by and large, education, all these kinds of things, we, I think the reason I describe this is in Silicon Valley, I think we're being a little disingenuous about them. We act like we're solving every problem in the world, but we are not. We're not trying. We are trying to solve the bottom half of the pyramid. Mm. Those are technical problems. The top half of the pyramid, what humans need to be happy, 
I don't think we even have good ideas yet. Like mm. we we have people who say they have ideas, but I don't think we really have good ideas, mm. right? We don't understand enough about how these humans work to be able to have computers are good at helping us with things we know how to do. Mm -hmm. They're not so good at helping us with things we don't know how to do. Right. So, so I don't know. I don't know. So we, yeah. So we still have this problem of like, you can't turn over the job of taking care of humans until you can do it. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's very disingenuous in, in society right now to be worried about things like robots taking jobs. Like, a robot should do every menial, dangerous, repetitive, unrewarding job that it can do better than a human. Because we need humans to do the things that robots can't do. In particular, we need to take care of other humans. Right? Mm. And that's and when you look at things like, 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 we cannot make, much less hire, enough nurses mm -hmm. in this world. We cannot make much less hire enough teachers in this world. Mm -hmm. And why are we pissed off about a possible robot taking the job of a truck driver? Mm -hmm. Right. We also have 100,000 open truck driver jobs in America right now. So that isn't actually a real problem because there are no robot trucks yet. Um, but we're wound up about these things because we have these scary stories about technology in our head. Mm -hmm. We should celebrate every truck driver who's displaced by a robot and have them be a teacher. Right? These are not technology problems. This is a human values problem. Humans have chosen to waste our money on having people drive Happy Meal toys around in trucks instead of teaching our kids. Right? Like my daughter's class always had like 30 kids and one teacher. Mm -hmm. And she wasn't like the problem kid. So you know, she's just hanging out. She's not learning anything a lot of the time, right? She's not in trouble, but she's not learning anything because the teachers pointed at the kids who are having trouble. Mm -hmm. And we have a PTA meeting and bitch about student-teacher ratios. I would trade any of her teachers, all of whom have been good, for a displaced truck driver and a one-to-one -one student-teacher ratio. Mm. You don't even need a very good teacher if you only have one student, mm. right? And we don't think that way. We aren't thinking about the actual fundamental problem and our values. What do we care about? We care about, we care about our kids. We care about learning. We care about creating better humans. Mm -hmm. But then when it comes time to spend money, well, I'm not paying for that tutor. I'm going to pay for PlayStation, Netflix mm -hmm. subscription, cool new Kanye sneakers, whatever. So... I just think this is a this conversation is is not going well in society. It's people people want to blame technology for all their problems instead of themselves and their and their expression of their values. They say one thing and they live another. And so you really got to get clear about what you care about. And so that's how I think Maslow's hierarchy fits into this. So just to be clear, I don't work on the top half of the pyramid. Mm -hmm. That's not my skill set. I'm mm -hmm. not a nurse. Um I work on the bottom half of the pyramid, which, which is the foundation. That's the basis. I'm mm -hmm. going to try to make it so that everyone on earth can live, a, have a living standard that's as good as an American. Mm. And that sounds crazy, but we are going to do that on mm. this planet in the next century. Mm. Right? That is possible. 
because technologies are giving us the force multiplier to do that. We've already done it in the last century. I mean, Americans' living standard has raised significantly. We live better than kings. Mm -hmm. We live better than kings from a hundred years ago. But everyone else's has come up to the point where we were a hundred years ago and beyond. So it sounds audacious and crazy, but it's absolutely not. And it's totally within the, we don't even need to invent new technologies to do that. We need to deploy the ones we already have invented. And that's all possible in the next century. So that's what I'm working on. Things that I care about. Yeah. This is the most passionate I've seen you. Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, thank, thank you for, for yeah, really sharing to, your heart. I'm trying to be candid. Let's talk that's important to share. You have to be candid, you have to be honest, and you have to be be focused on the things you think matter, you know? So you're speaking to a fellow technologist yeah. who's focusing on the top half. Yeah, okay. okay so, right. so let's, let's, let's right, cool. jam on this a little bit, yeah. okay? So my perspective is that our human experiences solely are between our heads, essentially. So if we have, you know, um, the wrong mindset, however comfortable mm. the environment, the resources, right? The, the, the friends, the mm -hmm. toys you may have, mm -hmm. still miserable, depressed, suicidal. I've seen that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. That's right. So, so in my mind, the, the source of suffering and joy stems from the mind. Hence why I'm focusing on the mind a lot. Sure. Okay. Right? And I'm not sort of arguing against you yeah. that the, is it also important to have, you know, sustenance, right? Physiology, yeah. security, yeah. roof once over you your got head. That solved, then... then, then in my mind, it's important to use technology as an amplifier, as a catalyst to help humans dive deeper into their own psyche. Okay. Because I would assert um, that most humans don't really know how to use their mind. Yeah. They, they let their egoic survival instincts whatever mm -hmm. so that's why they go after the iphones or the the playstations mm -hmm. you know things that give them short-term pleasure rather than long-term fulfillment sure a la taking care of the kids right hanging out with friends you know do meaningful things whatever the thing is yeah, yeah. for them individually yeah um so do you have any comment on that well i think so i didn't say technology would never help with the quality of life problems in the top half of the pyramid. Um, but I think we're at the beginning of figuring that out. Mm -hmm. So even the things you describe, they're fruitful endeavors to, to work on. Like we want to learn about our brains, learn about our psychology, even as individuals, understand ourselves, learn to know yourself. That's all very important. Um, and, you know, maybe, a you know, a, tomato timer app can help you with that um but what I i'm sorry I, i'm sorry that's like a you know like there's a pomodoro thing yeah yeah right i'm just <laughs> make, i'm just being crass um <laughs> whatever app helps you fine i'm not saying don't do it what i'm saying is um that's a it's a much different class of problem mm. right so like i i divide I make two kinds, of, I'd make two piles of problems in the world. Problems that are technical in nature mm -hmm. and then problems with people and between people and groups of people and human decision-making and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And that, all that is out of my jurisdiction, <laughs> right? Because it's, it is messy and it's not 
um, and also humans are more difficult to reboot. <laughs> um, I, I like computers and robots and machines because uh, I, I can I can uh, recover from my failures more quickly, I guess. So, so gentle but, pushback there, yeah. real quick. Gentle pushback because you've worked with Bill Gates, you know, Gates and Melinda, uh, Melinda and Bill Gates Foundation. They have the technical solution, which is the malaria uh, vaccine. There you go. Whatever, right. whatever the thing, right? Right. But the problem was human because the distribution, the yep, incentives, there you go. Exactly. they couldn't get it to the place. Right. I actually didn't work for the foundation at all. Oh, you didn't? Okay. No. I mean, that's a whole separate organization. They do take on these political issues and how to distribute and all that. That's how to, that is not my department. Um, I, I mean, I worked some with Bill on inventing, but it's totally separate from the foundation and it was so i you know i mean not to say that not to absolve myself of all responsibility but i it's not the that's not the part i work on and so and i just think it's important to understand that the nature of these these things is totally different right but the the, the point i was trying to make yeah. here is that human beings have human natures yeah. uh, robert green right he's wrote a whole book about it human nature okay um so let's say you've come up with the perfect cancer-solving solution. Let's just say, yeah. right? Nonetheless, you, there still needs to be deployed, and then they instead yeah, of still got to get through FDA, I still got all these right. things. So, so in my mind, mm -hmm. this is my humble opinion that as a technologist, you always need to think about the human mm -hmm. factor, no matter what. Um, I don't think you always do. You don't, which is okay. an unpopular view. Please, please um, say more about that. I think that every a technology like anything else has a life cycle. Mm -hmm. You know, the, there's the, you know, at some point, so you got to, like if you're having a kid, you know, you got to put them through school, get them to work hard, get them into college, hopefully pay for that, then get them into their first job. Like people have to, different people have to help all along the way to make that happen. Okay. I only do the fun part at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. As an inventor, I'm just like, hey, look, here's another one. Uh, see what you think. If it sucks, you know, maybe put it in jail. But, you know, look, there's a um, – there's a – so I, I do think it is um, very So once popular. you're invented, uh, out of your hands? Not necessarily, but look, I mean, it's very popular these days to take anything anybody's working on and say, well, did you think of all the unintended consequences? And did you think about what this community or that community is going to think about it? It's like – if I think about all those things, I'm never going to get anything done that I'm good at. So I, I don't believe that that is a uh, nearly as productive of an exercise as, as people imagine. Um, Specifically it's, it's, for inventors? Well. Or for anyone? I, I don't know. I, I'm just going to talk about inventors. But, mm. for, but in my case, I think it's okay for inventors to just go try to figure out as much as they can mm. about how to invent solutions to problems how to make things that are possibilities, how to add tools to the arsenal mm. and, and, and then keep doing that. Mm. Go, keep doing the thing you're good at mm. because we have a whole lot of people who are really good at figuring out how to not do things. <laughs> so I don't really worry about <laughs> inventing something that then goes on to cause a real problem because chances are, it, I mean, like I said, we have 6,000 inventions. Mm. Right. Most of them are not going to go anywhere. And that's the ones we patented, mm -hmm. you know, to get there, we probably had to have a hundred thousand ideas. So mm -hmm. it's, so if, if I was worried about 
all the possible ramifications. And I might not be good at that anyway. I might not be good at thinking about what the, you know, Latino community is going to think of my new idea, mm. right? Because I'm not part of it. Mm. Let them think about that. Let them advocate for it. Maybe it works. Maybe my invention is really useful for that community and not useful for another one. You know, mm. I don't, mm. I can't, I can't be thinking about what everybody else in the world is going to think about. And I, and I, and I really believe that, you know, we have a lot of different cultures in the world. Mm. We have a lot of different countries. We have mm. a lot of different people and they don't agree about what's cool. And you know what? None of them are right. Mm-hmm. Like there is nobody who's got it right. And right. so I don't, I don't buy that story that I should try to think about whether this is wrong for anybody because somebody might actually think it's right. So, mm. and, and, and so I just think fundamentally. So you know, hold on. So yeah. your role is the tool maker, the technology yeah, maker. Right. And then how people use the tool, whether for good or not for good. That's right. You know, it's whatever they feel is effective for their right. problem. That's right. Because problem and solution are both contextual. That's right. Got and it. if you, and so I think from an inventor standpoint, that's how I think about it. I don't think it makes a lot of sense to vilify inventors for not extrapolating all the horrible things somebody might do with their invention a hundred years from now. Mm-hmm. So. Um, for as a venture capitalist, I'm backing entrepreneurs. Now that's a different story. Okay. Because an entrepreneur is picking up this technology and trying to sell it to you. Mm. They're trying to say, Hey, this can solve your problem. This can make things better for you. This is a good choice, right? So they're advocating for it. And again, I think that should be their job. Now, if they're, it's like, Hey, check this out. You know, are you annoyed by traffic? This hand grenade can just blow cars up in front of you, <laughs> throw it out your sunroof, and they'll get out of your way. It's a fucking amazing invention. And, you know, so if I'm backing an entrepreneur like that, who's like, who's, you know, whose idea is obviously really bad for a lot of people, maybe not for the customer, but bad for society, like, you know, I probably, you know, made, made a suboptimal choice and probably shouldn't give that guy any more money. Right? Yeah. Now, I might have given him the money before I realized how bad his product was going to turn out, yeah. you know? So again, I'm not saying I, I'm going to get it right every time, you know, cause these guys pivot and the next thing you know, they're blowing shit up and not shit they own. So you gotta, at some point, like it gets absurd. So, you know, I think there's a, there's a different story there and, and, and the market should solve that. Mm. Like we should say, no, that's a fucking terrible idea and not buy it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And, um, and so, and then, you know, you would hope that, I mean, I'm a very early stage VC, so I, I fund people before we know if their ideas are actually any good, but most VCs come in much later after I've, you know, after we've got the thing working. Right. And so you would hope that they would also look at it and say, that's a terrible idea. The track record isn't perfect. VCs have funded a lot of stupid shit, but you know, that's, that's how it works. And over time, I think. Where, you know, the biggest problem, honestly, is much later in the game, which is that once that product exists, the, the, the customer has a chance to decide if, this, if they, they get to vote with their dollars. They get to vote with their eyeballs and their attention, right? And so when you, and this is, for, I think, for your audience, the real point that matters is, like, you get to choose what you want in the world by voting with your dollars. Mm. That is the most powerful vote you'll ever have. So second would be voting with your eyeballs, which is just mm. giving your brain 
over to whoever wants it. So that the responsibility for killing bad ideas largely lies in the in the hands of the customer who make it possible. If you don't buy something, if no one buys it, it will die mm. every time. Mm. So we have a very effective, if you want to see democracy at work, it works in the market. Doesn't necessarily work with this whole voting for politicians scheme, but it definitely works in the market. You get to vote things into oblivion by not buying them, mm. right? And when you get pissed off at the things that do exist in the world, it's because you probably and certainly other people voted for it too much, mm. right? And, and so you could extrapolate from there that that commentary could be applied to um, people's frustration with social media and with Uber and with, you know, whatever, things like that, right? We voted for those things with our dollars. Real, real quick, as you're speaking about um, being a venture capitalist, someone like Elon Musk, to me, is a full-stack entrepreneur okay. who can conceive an idea, did some yeah. you know uh, original calculations have prototypes and move it all the way to the broader society and market right because okay. he has yeah. he has right. the resources the brain the, a lot of different skills to do that yeah has but it's really rare to have that combination of skills so hence why there's one elon to you know essentially in my mind mm -hmm. single-handedly push electric cars and stuff like that to, yeah. um, you know, accelerated it from hundred years to like 10 years, something right. like that. There right. you go. So, uh, when you are making this type of investment decisions going forward, are you looking for someone like a full stack entrepreneur like that? Or are you more of just like, Hey, this guy can really fucking invent. Yeah. Let me double down on this, but, but the future of where he's going to go, let's see what happens. Well, well, that's there's two things there. So, I mean, I don't actually know Elon Musk. I think we met like in passing. Okay. I don't know him. Um, but obviously, like you, I've seen uh, the rise of Tesla and SpaceX and all these things. Mm -hmm. um, but I've also been an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. I don't want to hire people and fire people. And I really don't want to have to help them grow in their careers and stuff like that. You know, all this shit that you have to do. I don't want to do, uh, the, I don't want to manage a PNL. I don't want to have to call and negotiate with suppliers. There's a lot of shit I don't want to do. I've had to do all of that. Yeah. And some, and I can pretend to be good at it for a while, some of it, but most of it I'm not naturally good at yeah. most of it in one lifetime. I'm not going to become good at. Yeah. But as an entrepreneur, for being honest. <laughs> to get your to get your projects done, you have to do everything. Mm -hmm. You have to do everything. You have to learn everything and you have to do everything that you can't find somebody better than you to do. That is the job. And it is um, exciting for some people and they embrace it and do it well. But at the end of the day, some, even someone like Elon, I don't know him, but I'm guessing – there's a part of the job that he likes that he wants to do. He often says that it's the engineering. Mm -hmm. Everything else, he just had to, he had to learn mm -hmm. and he had to do it to get his projects done. Mm -hmm. And so um, people like that are extraordinary and they're rare. And I don't think it scales. Mm -hmm. 
I think that's a huge problem for the world. And when I look at the reason Elon has been so successful fundamentally, I think it is because he, he definitely had an interest in science and technology and engineering early on. That's what he wanted to do. But instead of focusing on that, he went to work in finance. Mm -hmm. And the guy learned fundamentally how finance works. And that has helped him borrow absurd amounts of money and it's helped him finance his companies in ways that other entrepreneurs would never have understood how to do. And that has been the superpower that got him through. It's an amazing thing to see. I, I don't know any entrepreneur that's pulled off what he has, even at a smaller scale. And I'm, and I'm embarrassed in my own track record as an entrepreneur, I think it's embarrassing to look back and say, oh man, if I had only understood finance better, I always thought finance was dumb and for people who weren't doing anything cool. Um, and I was kind of an asshole to finance people sometimes. My apologies. I um, have <laughs> since gained a, appreciation. <laughs> um, and I think that um, – so I think that's a very important thing to understand. And, and that's one example. There, You could you could ruin it in other ways and all of us are kind of a Venn diagram that's off kilter and all of us have gaps including Elon Musk. Some of his are obvious um, because he's a public figure. <laughs> um, but the – but there's a, and you know, maybe in some sense, the point of your podcast is like, well, learn how to improve yourself, you know, mm -hmm. um, take on the, those gaps and don't let them ruin your life and things like that. Um, so that's one thing. Second, as, as an investor, you know, I'm looking to back primarily technologies that can make a difference. Now, a technology disembodied from a, a founder or a inventor or a product or something is totally useless. And I know better what than anyone. Disembodied. It means like I have a patent sitting on the shelf. Mm. It's not going to go anywhere. Mm -mm. Like the world has no use for a patent mm -mm. at all. If I take the patent, give it to an entrepreneur and make an LLC, <laughs> now you got something the world knows how to work with. Right? Mm -mm. So in a lot of times, as a very early stage investor, that is kind of what I'm doing. I'm trying to piece the puzzle together, make this technology look a little bit more like what the venture community is used to seeing, right? And so a lot of times I'm starting with a founder who is the technologist. You know, they're the technical founder. And there's a lot of problems I run into. You know, a technical founder might be really smart, they might know everything you could possibly know about the thing they invented. Um, they might even have a good idea about how it could be commercialized and go to market. But there's a bunch of common failure modes. You know, the most common one is they're not an entrepreneur. I mean, straight up, there is an archetype, a mindset that makes a good entrepreneur. And what are those? Some people, well, there's a lot of hustle in it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is, there's a lot of hustle in it. A lot of times that, that hustle ends up being anathema to the technical founder, mm. meaning as a technical, I had this problem some, you know, as a technical founder, I have to be right about the things I tell you. Mm -hmm. I have to be able to say, 
this technology is going to work. I understand it. I know you don't, but uh, trust me, it's going to work. If, I, if it turns out I'm wrong about anything, you can't trust me. Mm-hmm. Right? I can't lie. I can't exaggerate. I can't, I can't even speculate about some numbers because that will erode trust in me. I'm the technical founder in that context. I need to be trustworthy. The entrepreneur needs to be able to say, wave his arm, say, imagine the future. Imagine someday we have solved global warming. Well, here's the product that could do it, you know, like whatever. So an entrepreneur needs to take you into a a fantasy future. And they say, imagine it takes six months to get there. And you know what? Well, it took us six years, but you said it was going to be six months. Well, you know, (laughs) the entrepreneur needs to be able to brush that off and say, it's only going to be six more months. You know, that's kind of the, that's, I mean, for better or worse, it's just a different skill set, and it's a different kind of, um, I'm not saying that an entrepreneur needs to be able to lie, but they need to be able to tune into the human psychology. They need to be able to paint a picture, tell a story, contextualize the technology in a way that a specific kind of business or industry can get interested in it. You know, they need to be able to, you know, fill in some gaps and smooth over some bumps and and show people what's possible even before it's been done and before it's been proven. So I think that's a very important skill set. You can see that happening live on Twitter with Elon Musk and other, you know, other entrepreneurs. So um, it's a, it's a, it's an important skill set. So you, you know, they need to have a sense of business. They need to be able to understand, um, you know, the fundamentals of business. You know, this is a product. The product is going to cost something to make. You know, somebody's got to pay for it. They need to pay more than the cost to make it or at certain volume that has to even out. You know, there's all those kinds of fundamentals that a technical guy could learn, but um, a lot of times they haven't, put the effort in to learn those things and they often have a cultural bias against them. You know, like the easy one to see is, um, you know, technical founders often have a disdain for salespeople. Mm. Right. Um, we see this all the time. Engineers think they're super smart. Salespeople are idiots who are lying all the time. And they, and there's in that they don't hang out together. They don't have lunch together. They don't want anything to do with each other. They think that the other part of the company should be eliminated, <laughs> right? <laughs> and um, and obviously that's not ever true. Mm-hmm. Like you actually need both. And it is very rare that you have one person who can be both, mm-hmm. right? I don't think that scales and I don't think it's the right thing to try to do that. But Silicon Valley is constantly looking for that guy. So I think a better thing is, and, and a winning strategy, which you can see a lot, is when kind of like dating when those people can pair up Mm. you know when a technical founder can develop enough of a appreciation and trust in an entrepreneurial founder to work together and there's so much fucking work to do you need to do that anyway Mm -hmm. like in every startup there's so much work to do doesn't matter if you're elon musk you can't do it himself it's a it's a farce that it's a it's a fiction for the public that elon musk does everything Mm-hmm. That Steve Jobs did everything. These people do not fucking do everything. What they do is they surround themselves with smart people who are effective at doing their job. And they let them do their job, right? Elon Musk and Steve Jobs are famous for firing people. You know why? They didn't fucking do their job, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? They didn't do the job they were entrusted to do, right? 
those guys give their team a longer leash than other managers, mm. right? The, the reward to them for giving a long leash is you better get the job done, mm. right? If you don't get the job done, I'm not going to fix you. I'm going to fire you and replace you with somebody who's better, mm. right? And I believe that is a winning strategy that is being neglected in a lot of contexts, mm. right? Like that is the game. If you don't want that long leash and you want somebody to micromanage you and you need a helicopter mom, you can go work at, you know, I won't name companies. <laughs> so, so that's the, that's what's going on there. Right. Mm -hmm. And so even though to the public, it looks like, oh, Elon Musk goes and turns every screw himself to put together a Tesla in between, you know, building rockets. So that's not what's going on. Right. Obviously, if you, you know, it doesn't take much to think about it and figure it out. So that's the, that's so, the, so actually, so let me, yeah. let me, let so, me, uh, so what I'm, so let me say one last thing. Yep. Mm -hmm. What I'm looking for in a founder is can they take the help? Mm. Now that might mean doesn't necessarily have to be help from me. Hopefully it's not because I got other things to do, but I'll try to help you. And if I can help you and you can take the help, then I'm very excited about working with you. Mm. If I come to you, if I'm, you know, you're trying to get me to back you and I say, Hey, this looks good. You got three out of five puzzle pieces. We got to find a founder, a, 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 we got to find an entrepreneurial co-founder to be CEO. Or I, I say, you know, this is cool, but, you know, we're going to have to get the prototype done before we can raise real money or whatever. Whatever I say, if you're like, cool, let me work on that. I'm stoked to work with you. Mm. If you're like, well, you know, that's not how we're going to do it. Or, you know, which might be right. That's fine. You don't need my help. Or I'm going to be CEO um, because everybody else will fuck it up. Okay, cool. I'll watch you fuck it up from a distance. Um, because, <laughs> because I know you need help and it doesn't necessarily have to be from me, but you have to be able to take help from somebody mm -hmm. because you're going to need a whole team. Yeah. And that's the job here. We're building a company. We're building a, an enduring company. We're building a team that's going to make things happen. I don't, there's no individual on earth. I mean, I know some of the smartest people on earth. I know some of the most capable people on earth. I know some of the most successful people on earth. None of them do it themselves. Yeah. That is not the game. I'm not looking for somebody like that. Even if they did exist, I wouldn't be the one to try them. I yeah. want to find, I want to find somebody who can be, can attract a team of people who are smarter than them and trust them to do their jobs. So that's the, that's usually the single most important attribute I'm looking for. That's beautiful. So what I heard, yeah. number one is coachability, right? To work with you, right? Well, I, they don't, it doesn't have to be me. I mean, I, I help in the ways I can. But there has to be some sign that they can accept help from somebody. Somewhere yeah, or somewhere. and then ability to attract a team. Um, That's very helpful. To, to, to Good entrepreneurs do that because mm -hmm. they are, you know, they're inspiring people to come commit their, what's mo most valuable, their, their, their time, their attention, their skills to your idea. What do you think about prima donnas? Someone well, who is very capable, who may be coachable but may have some, you know, no, we, we have prima donnas. Well, we have a, uh, we have precedents for that. Like sometimes it works, right? There are people who are successful entrepreneurs that you would characterize that way. I, but they're, they don't scale. Mm -hmm. There's not enough of them. Mm -hmm. And at least not for what I'm trying to do, which is, you know, I'm trying to solve a lot of big problems in the world. Mm -hmm. I can't just have, you know, 
if I if I make the next Facebook, I'm a failure. Mm-hmm. So I got to find uh, people who can build build teams to solve problems. And so a prima donna, I think there's a you know look there is a case, you know I call it, you know, there is a model that works, which is one big asshole at the top. That's that's <laughs> Steve Jobs and Elon Musk and arguably some of the other famous founders you know. And they do a really important thing. It, they um, they take the heat and they provide cover mm. for the people who are getting the job done. Mm. So when you pick those stories apart, what you see is those guys, I mean, it looks like they're prima donnas. It looks like they're megalomaniacs. It looks like they want all the attention for themselves. What they're doing is they're drawing fire. Mm. Right? They're taking the 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 heat they're taking the responsibility they're taking the fire off of their team Mm. you don't know the names of anybody who works at tesla probably Mm. unless they were friends who went there elon doesn't get on stage and talk about his team Mm. right he keeps the whole world focused on him on the product on the company on what they're doing where they're going next on the vision and when the world is bitching and moaning about Tesla, they're bitching directly at Elon Musk on Twitter all the time. Mm-hmm. No one holds back. Mm-hmm. The guy takes more heat than anyone on earth. Mm-hmm. Not even Putin draws as much mm-hmm. of a inflammatory, you know, uh, criticism as Elon Musk. That's his job, mm-hmm. right? He can do that, and it frees up his team to work. Mm-hmm. He doesn't need his team on Twitter. I don't know if anyone else at Tesla is tweeting. Probably not. He would probably fire them if they did. Mm. Like, I got Twitter covered. You guys fucking build Teslas faster. Mm. <laughs> right? So that's and, – and so, you know, a lot of times the stories we have in our minds about what's going on in these contexts are, are askew. You know, they're not – it's not what's really going on. I'm trying to describe what I think is going on in these places. But so I think there's a – you know, the, the, the so-called prima donna – um, you know, we've seen it a few times in tech. It's been effective at times to do things that were seemingly impossible. Um, so I have some respect for it, but I don't think it is the scalable model, and I don't think it's the, on average, most successful one. Mm. Um, and so I, you know, I, I don't really expect to back a founder that um, where I think that's the primary thing going on. Mm. So got it. So. You have had the privilege of working with some of the luminaries of our time, right? The Gates, the Jeff Bezos, uh, Nathan Mervold. And then you had shared how they look at time a little differently. So when, can, sure. So before you go into what makes them different, speak about how they think about time and perhaps. Well, the um, the thing that, makes an impression on me the most or one of them is early on when we started blue origin you know there were like three or four or five of us trying to figure out how to get into space together right and it sounded like a impossible crazy idea to build a spaceship company um this was before spacex this is before anyone had made a significant effort to build a private 
space program. <laughs> like that had, that was not a thing before. Um, it was unprecedented to imagine somebody being wealthy enough to even try. And at the time, Jeff was worth about $7 billion. And we thought that was astounding. Like, holy shit, that's so much money. What could we do with like a billion? Which was like an, an absurd budget for a startup. Because in those days, no one had ever been funded like that. And much less to do something so cool that obviously had no commercial potential <laughs> in, in the near term. So, um, well, wait, so go, going yeah. to that a, a little bit. So was it like, Hey, I just want to go to space. Like, yeah. what was the motivation? Yeah. Behind? Well, that's the, so that's how, the thing and also what, yeah. what has, how has it pitched you to say, Hey, let me be a part of this like wacky yeah. idea of going to space. Um, well, I wasn't recruited by Jeff. I was recruited by, um, Neil Stevenson and Keith Rosema, who were the guys that were, that had started it with Jeff. I think Neil had talked Jeff into start Jeff and Neil had been hanging out. And I, as, as I understand it, like Jeff said, Oh, it'd be kind of cool to do like, try and do our own space, you know, programs on, on you know, or, you know, I'd, I'd like to do that. And Neil's like, well, how about now? <laughs> and just like, okay. <laughs> so that was kind of the origin of Blue Origin. And, um, and so then, um, you know, they, the idea was to try to find a, uh, you know, is there a better way of getting into space than rockets? Because, you know, um, there are a lot of other ideas, but they had not been developed. And some were from NASA, some were from other places. And so we built this group called Blue Operations to explore variations on, on other ways of getting into space. And there are a bunch of really cool ideas. But, um, you know, we spent a few years working on them. And what we found was that rockets are actually the most practical now because you're standing on the shoulders of NASA and Russia and the $50 billion they had spent in, you know, developing rocket technology. So if you wanted to get into space anytime soon, probably better to just do rockets. So that's when Blue decided to develop a rocket. Mm. And they set off to develop a rocket, um, which has turned out awesome. Like they have a killer, powerful rocket. Mm. People don't realize SpaceX took a scrappier approach and re-engineered a Russian rocket. Mm. So they, they took a Russian rocket sign and then started advancing on that, um, which has also obviously worked out pretty well. And they, they've been very, very scrappy, very um, motivated public about what they do. And it's been inspiring to watch. Um uh, blue was always very quiet, you know, we didn't, why is that? Um, well, I think partly it's just different personality. Jeff has it, has, a not a need to be in the public spotlight. Um, it doesn't help the development process to have more, you know, public, well, we attention didn't need money. SpaceX okay. needed money. Uh, right. So I think that might be the fundamental reason I'm, I'm speculating, but anyway, so 
Uh, I think it would have been nice. I mean, everybody probably would have liked it if Blue could move faster, but they had taken on a big engineering project and it just took time. Mm. So anyway, um, um, yeah, so that, that was the, you know, that was kind of the, the layout of what was happening there. What's the, so from your perspective, yeah, since I yeah. haven't really met anyone who's worked directly with these guys, what would you, okay, because the thing I asked about was yeah. how they think about time. Yeah, so, right. So, so, so say okay. more about so how the they point think of, about time. So the point of Blue Origin from the beginning was not to make money. Like Jeff has a way of making money <laughs> that works really well. Um, the point of Blue Origin was to recognize that, you know, Earth is actually really special. That's why it's called Blue Origin. We have the most blue planet. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful place. And if you extrapolate the future for our species, at the, in the best case scenario, things go great until Earth melts into the sun, right? That's an inevitability. So there are lots of other existential threats that could happen sooner. But, um, but one way or another, for this species to evolve, we will have to get off of this planet. And that's a very science fiction notion that most people wouldn't agree with or accept or they probably haven't even thought about. That's okay. But if you do accept it, then you recognize, well, that's a real difficult long-term problem to solve. And long-term problems, you got to start a long time in advance <laughs> to solve. So if you, you know, if humans were to, were to try and, you know, get, make it practical to be in space, we've got to start sometime, might as well be now. And if you look at what the vision for Blue Origin is, and really what Jeff has articulated, it's, it's trillions of humans thriving in space. Mm. Obviously, you can't have trillions of humans on this planet mm. in, under any circumstance. Mm. But you could someday have trillions of humans in space colonies. Maybe some of them stay close to Earth. You might come visit Earth once or twice in your lifetime like you're visiting a national park. Mm. Um, other ones might be sent off, you know, irreversibly towards other galaxies. Who knows, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think it's actually a beautiful vision, even though, you know, it, that does sound like science fiction. It's obviously not something most people are thinking about day to day. It's they got more important issues to worry about. And that but that to me is the is the basis of what it means to be better ancestors. You know, could we start that ball rolling? Could we think on longer time horizons? Could we could we take a little bit of our excess attention and resources and aim it at generations yet to come. Mm. And, and what I learned from Jeff was that he was free of some of the, you know, material concerns that bog a lot of us down. And he was wealthy enough to think on that long of a time horizon mm. and to think about practically pursuing something on that long of a time horizon. And so Good again, question. not to vilify anybody who doesn't do that, you got to do what you got to do. But that's what I learned quick, in that context. Quick question there. Has he always been that way or he only started to think about that way 
now that his material wealth is ever, you know, can be finished on Jazan. Well, I, I mean, you know, Jeff should answer those questions and maybe he has, I, you know, Jeff, by all accounts, has been obsessed with going to space since he was a kid. Oh, I didn't know that. He's on the record at like age 18 in high school saying, I'm going to make a bunch of money so I can go to space. And then, you know, the rationale for getting into e-commerce and starting Amazon was to make a bunch of money to go to space. So <laughs> I think he's on the record for those things. So I think it's pretty sincere, his okay. interest. And, and, you know, that's fair. I'm not a space geek. Yeah. You know, that is not the thing that drives me. Um, but, but for him, that really, it really was. And mm. so that's what I saw. Yeah. Mm, beautiful. And I know that you and I, we also talked about their limitation to time and space and the Bill Gates approach and the Jeff Bezos approach, uh, it's a little bit different. Oh, um, well, you know, yeah. I mean, Bill definitely was not a space geek in the same way. Um, and he's aimed his attention. Um, I mean, I think his attention was very focused on Microsoft for most of his career, but obviously in the last 10, 15 years, steered that towards philanthropy um, and, you know, trying to find ways to solve problems for humans on earth in a, in a shorter window of time, you know, in, in something, you know, now, <laughs> uh, now and in the immediate future. And so um, that has been awesome and inspiring also in a different way because, because, you know, what's cool about it is I think Bill does have a practical, um, you know, mindset around how to solve these problems, right? Like he's not trying, he's not just a charity, you know, when we would invent a technology that could help eradicate disease or something, it still had to come with a business model mm. because anything that's a charity, like is going to run out of money. Even Bill eventually was going to run out of money, mm. giving it away. So we would try to invent these things in a way where it could, you know, uh, make a business. Maybe the business didn't have to pay for all the R and D um, or the manufacturing or the setup costs. We could cover those things. But once it was up and running, it had to sustain itself, mm. you know? So some of the inventions are like that, you know, like a simple one is um, we were trying to help, these what are called smallholder farms there's mm. half a billion of them in the world they're basically like a family with a cow or some chickens mm. right you and i don't see them often because we live on the west coast but in a lot of places in the world what's going on is the family has some livestock of some kind and that is part of their income you know it's mm. part of their livelihood it's very important um, for a lot of them they have a cow and the cow produces milk. They, and we would see this often in like in different places in Africa, you'd have a smallholder farm where the family would milk the cow twice a day. Mm. They milk it in the morning, take the milk to market and sell it. Mm. They milk it in the evening and that milk, the family would use. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, the you know you got to remember these is the context where they have a cow but they don't have a refrigerator mm. so there's no preservation the way we're used to having there's no refrigerator there's no power for it you know this this milk is spoiling 
in pretty rapidly. Mm. What the um what we were trying to figure out as well is there a way we could help them preserve the milk from the evening that they could also take it to market and double their income. Mm. And we, we I, I don't get into all the details, but we tr- we invented like a really cool microfluidic ultra pasteurizer that cost $50,000 and was super high tech and failed every time. And um, all kinds of inventions that were bad ideas. And then we invented a genius invention that totally works. What it is, is a better milk jug. Mm. So possibly one of our most successful inventions is a better milk jug. So it's a milk jug made of food grade plastic. Because these people are using jerry cans. Like they're Mm. literally using the same kind of can used for gas. They would like rinse it out real good. Wow. And put milk in it. Wow. In some cases. I mean, I know it's pretty ridiculous. I mean, that's just their context. Again, I'm not blaming them. That They're doing the best they can, but that's the resources they have to work with. Yeah. The milk jug we invented, it was food-grade plastic, so that's a start. Um, we figured out that a big part of what you need to be able to do is clean it real good. Mm. So it has a huge opening, a lid big enough that you can stick your hand in it Mm-mm-mm. and scrub it out. Mm. Um, and it has a handle built in, um, there's, they stack real nicely. There's a couple features and we were able to design that, make molds for it, and then set up businesses in different markets that could produce the, produce the product locally in a injection molding operation and sell it locally. And that product is all over now and it makes a difference, Mm. right? And, and because it can. The thing is, ster- the milk, you can milk into it and it's sterile enough. Oh, there's, there's other features. But anyway, the point is you can keep the milk without refrigeration long enough to live another day. And mm. that's pretty cool. So anyway, that's, that's the kind of thing that we would try to do in the context of working with Bill. Also totally valid, super important. We love it. Um, it's just a different, it's a different mindset about where where to go to solve problems. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not, um, advocating really for one or the other. I think we need both. Mm. We need both at a large scale. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else about these two (laughs) specific person that you like, what makes them unique and such a game changer in the world? I really, I love, I love Jeff. He's got, he's so fun, really smart very energetic, gives a lot. I mean, I just, um, very impressed with, with Jeff. And I, I, in some sense, wish I spent more time working with him. Mm. Um, those days at blue, you know, he didn't get a lot of time to spend with us. Um, I'm hoping that now that, um, he's sort of got other people managing Amazon, he'll be able to spend more time on blue, which would be really cool for that project. Um, there's, uh, and I think people just don't know that they don't understand. These are some pretty, pretty delightful humans. Mm. Uh, Bill, who for some reason doesn't seem to, uh, play well in public, um, <laughs> is awesome. Mm. Bill is a great sense of humor. He's hilarious. He's <laughs> super smart, uh, obviously, but, uh, but funny, fun, sociable, not, not what people think at all. It's really strange to me that, um, people have a 
a lot of people have a kind of negative view of Bill personally, which is really sad because mm. he, he's pretty great. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I th and I think uh, they've both contributed a lot. It makes me sad to see people who are um, so negative about them. They've both done a lot for the world. I mean, if you look at human yeah. nature, yeah, it's always easier to blame the yeah. richest men for yeah. something happening in their life, right? It's just like my yeah. life is bad because, because these people really. Bill Gates made your life bad. Yeah. I, there were times when I thought that, um, you know, when I had to use Windows in the nineties. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but uh, that was, you know, I've, I've tried to repent a little bit for, for the things I said about Microsoft and Bill. Um, oh, you, you said that to him? I was, I was not a fan. Did, of you, did you say that to him? I, 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 no, I didn't say that to him. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm probably like one of the few people who got away with using a Mac in the room with Bill. Oh, no shit. Because not That's a lot funny. of people would do that in those days, but that is hilarious. Um, but. Yeah, well, uh, I don't know. Last question. Oh, actually, the second to the last question. Serendipity. Because we had mentioned it here. This is the invention business is your career, your life's passion, what you're about. You want to help others do the same. What are your thoughts to engineer more serendipities into some of these wacky ideas slash stupid ideas slash, mm. you know, out of this world ideas into the ethos? Well, the I think the... From my perspective, the most um, there's a really fundamental thing around experimentation. Nobody is smart enough to know what is going to work, mm -hmm. or what is going to win, what is going to be the best. And I say that, you know, with a high degree of confidence that I know some of the smartest people. They just aren't smart enough. And what we would do is look for a way to run a lot of experiments. And I think if you are really smart, that's what you're going to do. So in, in whatever context you're in, you will make better decisions if you run a bunch of experiments, try a bunch of things, and pick the best thing that's working the best. Rather than sit and try and be real smart and think about what's going to work the best and do that. Mm. Right? So, so this is the a great example of this is visible in in Silicon Valley. You know, in the in the eighties, big American companies all had like an R and D department whose job was to invent the next generation of technology for the company, and they all got their butts kicked by two guys in a garage in Silicon Valley with no money, no resources, no time. But we learned from that, right? Now Fortune 1000, they have R&D, they shut that down. And they replaced it with M&A, right? That's mergers and acquisitions. That means, you know, they watch the startups. And they watch, and it, like I said, every startup is a million-dollar experiment. We watch them all. And when one of them succeeds, one of them spikes, one of them works, we buy it up. And then we take it to our global marketing, manufacturing, distribution, all the things that the big company's good at, Right. And so that's a way of dividing and conquering and a way of doing what you're good at. And, and, and in the case of innovation, it, it keeps big companies from trying to innovate because they suck at that. And there's good reasons why they suck at that. But startups are really good at innovation and they kind of suck at often scale and often, you know, 
uh, doing things predictably and consistently and all that. So this is a way to divide and conquer and get everybody doing what they're good at. So I think you got to run a lot of experiments and the experiments are a version of serendipity. It's sort of planned serendipity. It's like, oh, we're going to go find something. And this is really hard to sell to like um, in some contexts, right? So like I, um, I remember speaking in Japan. So the Japanese companies, they're really, really good at doing things predictably. Not so good at innovation sometimes. So you can't sell them on experiments. You can't sell them on, on, uh, on, uh, but what you can do is you can sell them on testing. So I'm like, don't sell your boss on experiments or trying a bunch of crazy ideas. Sell your boss on testing. <laughs> Mr. Boss man, we're going to test a hundred ideas and we're going to pick the one that works the best. <laughs> that you could sell to a Japanese boss. So that's fine. That's kind of how I think about it. And, you know, in different contexts, you could adapt that, that thing. I love serendipity. I mean, for me, I'm constantly speculatively filling my head with things that I have no idea if they're going to pay off. Like what? I want to learn a lot. I have a lot of conversations. I'm constantly traveling. I move every week to a different city. I try to find the smartest, most interesting people I can and sit them down and pick their brains about stuff that may be is likely to be completely irrelevant to me for the rest of my life. I listen to pitches that I know I can't back from entrepreneurs who have crazy ideas just to see if I'll learn something. Right? Mm. I, um, I, I, I travel constantly to find people that are probably going to be irrelevant, but that I might learn something from. So I'm filling my head um, just to see what I find. You know, I like to find and make connections. I'm like, oh, I can't help you, but I bet I know someone who can. You know, maybe I can make those connections, you know. Mm. And that's a waste of time for a lot of people. Mm. For a lot of people, that would not be an effective way to get their job done, especially if they're trying to do something specialized or specific. Mm. But I'm trying, I'm not trying to solve a problem. I'm trying to solve like all of them mm. or any of them, <laughs> right? So if I learn about, you know, <laughs> different problems, that's fine, right? I never know when I might find a technology that could solve that problem. So I'm trying to trade on serendipity and do it at the largest scale I can. There's a limit to what one brain can do, you know, mm. but, but that's, so that is very interesting to me. Mm. Yeah. One of the things that's really obvious to me, Pablo, what, what you're doing is you're not doing it just tackling one problem, but you're actually fostering a whole ecosystem, right? You're, you're cross pollinating different yeah. people and the resources. You're exploring different solutions. You're exploring different problems. You, you know, do other things, you have conversations, you go to different places. One of the biggest, um, so there are two ingredients of uh, serendipity that mm. I have isolated. Mm. Okay. One is consistency. Mm. So you do the things that you have control over, a la showing up. Okay. Yeah. A la having conversations, mm -hmm. a la keep studying the things, right? Yeah. And then there's another part is basically that at times where you just need to say F it, you know, the, you're at the edge of like discomfort. Mm -hmm. You're like, oh, I don't know if I should, like you're really stretching yourself. Yeah. Right. So, so the, that those are the effort moments. That sounds moments. right to me. If you could do both, being consistent, keep showing up to do the thing you have control over and 
also keep putting yourself in situations or environments mm -hmm. where you have to say, uh, F it. Mm -hmm. If you can do those two, two things well, in my mind, that's like the so that, recipe for serendipity. So I don't remember meeting at TED, but it's hard to remember people from conferences because there's so many. Your brain kind of loses track. Yep. But I, I remember meeting at Salsa. Uh-huh. Because you and I are both obsessed salsa dancers. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. And what you just described to me is was my experience learning salsa because um, I don't, you know, when I started, you know, I mean, everyone, when they start, you suck. Mm -hmm. And you know you suck, but you still have to, like, ask a girl to dance with you. Knowing that they're not going to be impressed <laughs> because you suck, and since I don't drink, that was really hard for me. Um, I did not like I did not like uh, you know making a first impression with someone that is guaranteed to be to come out <laughs> uh, uh, not in my favor. So that's a uh, that was a tough experience. But I and and you can't. The other thing about salsa is you can't bring you can't bring any credentials. That's right. Like when I show up at salsa. You know, I am outranked by all the Mexican dishwashers. Like those guys kick ass at salsa and I don't. Uh -huh. <laughs> and so I have to show up and like I'm at the bottom of that food chain. I'm not cool. Everybody knows it. And and you just have to like work your way up. It's a it's a meritocracy, you know, and I love that. And it but it was hard. It's even now it's hard. Like if I because I'm constantly traveling, I go to a new city, you show up. Wait, wait. Nope. So yeah. back up on yeah. that sentence. You said you love that. Say more about that. I because, love it because be, it's then, because challenging for you. What one thing I would say, because let's say people get to a certain level of quote unquote success, yeah. you know, then the ego gets mm -hmm. in the way of yeah. like, hey, I don't want to be home That's right. in a new environment. That's that, right. You know, people are judging me. They may know me from other places. So it's exactly. difficult That's right. as you climb the social ladder, right? So, but yet you say you love that. So say more of that. Well, what I mean is I think for me, it's really good because mm. I'm cheating on the other side a lot. Like I inadvertently became a wildly successful public speaker, right? So when I show up to speak at a conference, I'm treated like the visiting rock star. I'm the one on stage. I'm the one everybody thinks is cool. And um. And I'm, so I'm cheating in that sense, right? And, and I can meet everybody and, it's, and, it, and I don't have to uh, prove anything. I mean, I'm, I'm on stage, so it doesn't, almost ma doesn't matter what I do. seems like I must know what I'm talking about. So that is delightful experience, probably unhealthy to do as much as I do it. <laughs> um, but, what's, but as a counterpoint, if, when, I'm go to, when I go to salsa, I'm not, I'm a nobody from the start. And and there were times, you know, like with salsa I, in my own town, I could get, you know, people knew me and there was a time when like I knew all the dancers and all the best dancers and I felt like I was one of the good dancers and part of the cool kids club. But when I but because I dance traveling, every city I go to, nobody knows me. I come in, I don't know not a single person is trying to dance with me because they don't know who I am. I'm the guy with the weird glasses that they've never seen before. And so I have to start from scratch every time and mm. work my way up to the, you know, prove that I'm not okay to answer to the better dancers, you know, that kind of thing. And it's a, it's, I know it's good for me. Mm. It's a frustration even now, 15 years in, mm. <laughs> um, you know, and I can dance, but, uh, but you have to like prove yourself every time. And I just think that's probably like that kind of thing is really, it's a good 
exercise for me um, in having that experience. Uh, it's a, I think of it as a gift, you know, it's like, it's a place I can go where nobody treats me like I'm special. Mm. Um, and it's valuable, mm. you know, and I think um, there's, you know, I think it's important to find something like that for people, you know, because um, you don't, and I, and I actually, I try to do that intellectually mm. like i'm 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 cheating in some ways because you know people know who i am or they've heard about one thing or another or i get introduced by someone cool and so a lot of times i i have given more deference than i've earned mm. with them mm -mm. but what i want to do is get to that point where they don't give a shit about impressing me mm. they're gonna shoot holes in my ideas the same way i'm trying to do for them you mm. know mm. And when I'm trying to get back to that same dynamic I described with the invention session, you know, mm -hmm. I want to be in a place where even though I'm with people who are, um, you know, who are, who've earned their place in the room, I want to be in that room, but I don't want to be treated like I, you know, um, I want to have to earn my place in that room, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that's just that dynamic I'm describing is a healthy thing to look for in your life. It doesn't have to be salsa dancing, obviously, but, um, but I think that's a, that one, I, I don't know if everyone has that experience. I don't know about you. I observe a lot of other people, guys who learn to dance, they also drink and mm -hmm. that helps them get over the, ah, oh, fuck it. Let's just dance. And they just, oh, the liquid courage. Yeah. The yeah. liquid courage. And so I'm like, I look back and I'm like, oh man, that would have saved me from a lot of frustration, <laughs> but I didn't, uh, do you didn't... feel like there's, you know, being able to humble yourself and, a big, to have the beginner's mind, yeah. yeah. is that transferable to your ability to innovate? Do you think that's a healthy thing or it's not necessary? And, oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. like, do you actually, see any correlations no, better at all? than that? Like for okay. me, I mean, I'm trading on that a lot because mm -hmm. as a computer hacker, no one's expecting anything particular from me. I don't have a professional reputation to defend. Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, like it's, it's like kind of like being a scientist, but without all the formal training and accountability, like nobody, I'm a, what's a fucking computer hacker. So they, <laughs> they know that I have some superpowers that they don't have. So that helps. So they're willing to give me, uh, you know, give me some attention, Yeah. but they're, but I'm not trying to defend a title mm. i'm not when i come in i'm i'm a wild card and i that is so valuable because mm. scientists and i i hire and fire phds i know they suffer a lot of times because they're trying to defend their credibility mm. and it holds them back they can't ask stupid questions mm. i can ask anybody in the world the dumbest question and it's fine because mm -hmm. there's no reason a computer hacker should know, like, what exactly is mitochondria? Can you explain that to me again? You know, well, obviously he doesn't know because he didn't go to college. I don't know. Like, whatever. <laughs> so <laughs> I've learned a lot about mitochondria this way. Mm. So you can, you, so that is a superpower that I got that mm. I think is, um, you know, even now, like, I'm, I don't know why I would tell your audience this. It seems like it would be a professional liability for anyone else. It might be for me. There's no, you know, it's no problem. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, it reminds me. I can me ask dumb questions. I can keep that beginner's mindset in a lot of contexts, and it's it's been wonderful.
Yeah. Uh, it reminds me of the Bruce Lee quote. Oh, be like water. Oh, right. Water is formless, shapeless. Yeah. It can. It can. It yeah. Can, it can, it can I stumbled whatever. on a version of that. Huh? I stumbled on a version of that. Yeah. yeah. So so you know, and in my mind, to me. Someone who holds on to their identity so tightly that mm. it's a sign of insecurity. Mm -hmm. But if someone is confident in himself and not, yeah. you know, if if I call you stupid, you're like, "Fucking CK, you don't know what you're talking about, yeah. right?" <laughs> because you're secure. Yeah, with that. Right. So, so and I so, might be stupid about a lot of things. But yeah, it doesn't which matter. Is, yeah, but, <laughs> yeah, to me that that's that's good. Yeah, it has to been be really... to be to have the freedoms from one's quote unquote professional or personal identity. Yeah. Uh, that def definitely helped me a lot. And the um and then and then you know if you extrapolate doing that for a lifetime at a rapid clip in a lot of you know extraordinary contexts, I mean it's it's added up to to be something unique. And now and that's what I love about what I do is I can now kind of aim that strange set of experiences and and the muscle memory and the um you know that that those kinds of perspectives at a lot of other people's projects so uh i'm gonna in a moment i'm gonna acknowledge you but here's the last question mm. that is you know ask you lots of different things okay. which traverse different domains right from your origin story to the laser uh shooting zapping machine that shoots the, the mosquito down to some of the intimate details of what's happening in the meeting, how that arise to the the inventor ecosystem and to the different management styles that <laughs> how Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates look at problems in different timelines to salsa dancing, put yourself in beginner's mind. We traverse a lot of different domains. Are there things that I should have asked, but I didn't ask? Um, and then I'll, I'll bring it in context a little bit. The audience of people that listen to this are people who was trying to do big things in the world. Oh. And they want to do it with purpose. They want to do it with heart. They want to leave quote unquote legacy, right? Being a net positive contributor yeah. to humanity. Okay. So that's, that's, that, that, that's the kind of people who are, yeah, you know, cares I, about these philosophies. Here's what I think. Um, there's a the majority of people that get described that way um, end up with a, a real fundamental problem mm. that's easy to fix. Okay. The fundamental problem is that they care a lot. They want to solve problems but they don't do arithmetic. So what that means is, look at an example like um, recycling. We've been recycling for 40 years, 50 years in the US, and we probably shouldn't have done it. It doesn't work for almost anything. Uh, we burn more coal to recycle things than we do to make fresh materials. Um, it has not been a net positive for for our environment, um, which is that we scaled it before we made it work. And what that does is it makes you feel like you've done your part. You separate your recycling out, throw the bottles and cans where they go, 
and you feel like this is great. I'm saving the planet and you're not fucking saving the planet. And it's very sad and frustrating. Even for me, I, I recycle too, even though I know it doesn't work and I want it to work. I really want to solve these problems that, that we have from, um, you know, the environmental damage from consumption and from how we've been producing energy. But if I allow myself to be sated by the recycling, I may not do the things that would move the needle and really solve the problem. So I think a very important skill that anyone can learn is to just go do the arithmetic, go add it up, go, you don't even need, you don't need trigonometry or any fancy math. You can just make a spreadsheet and add up the numbers and figure out, okay, is this thing I'm working on, is this thing I'm devoting my time and effort and attention and, and, and my being to, is it going to move the needle? Is it going to actually solve a problem or is it just going to make me feel good? Is it just going to make me look good? And unfortunately, the answer too often has been the latter. And so what I really would hope for your audience and for people who do care, because they're the front line, we need them. We, those are the people we need to start with. We need them to help us solve big problems, right? I'll give you a couple examples. In the U.S., um, we get about nine times as much energy as the average human on this planet. Um, that's why we're rich, right? You can trace almost everything about the success of America and the wealth of America and all that to the fact that we just have a lot of cheap energy. And cheap energy means we can build more cars, drive more places, fly more places, have, you know, organic free range produce FedExed in from other continents. Like we have all kinds of amazing stuff here. The job, if you want to save the world, is to give every human on earth as much energy as a given American. Hmm. We placate ourselves with these ideas that conservation will help or that it'll work. It's not going to work. It's never worked. We've never used less energy than the year before, right? And there's no, in the, even the most optimistic view of conservation, there's no roadmap that gets us to solving any of the problems we care about. We solve the problems we care about by making carbon-free energy, clean energy for everyone on earth and a lot of it. So there's a couple ways to do that. Um, the most well-known way um, that's practical is to use nuclear reactors. Yep. These things are a miraculous energy source. It uses radioactive materials that from the earth that were powered by the sun. That's where uranium comes from. <laughs> so <laughs> everything else does too, but you take the uranium and you use it to fuel a reactor. We built our first generation of reactors with pencils and slide rules with really smart engineers, but they didn't know much. In the intervening 60 years, we've built computers 
that can model what's going on in the reactor core. We can understand the activity of the neutrons. We can design reactors that are safe, that can't melt down. It's not hard at this point. I mean, it's work, but it's, it requires no miracles. We could make next generation reactors. We could make thousands of them. We could solve base load energy for the world with, uh, with those things, but we regulated them into oblivion in the US in the 80s because people were terrified of what they perceived as being uh, massive threats from Chernobyl and, and from, you know, Three Mile Island and things. The truth is nuclear's track record has been the safest energy source on the planet. Less people have been injured or died from nuclear reactors than solar panels or wind or anything else. Every year people die installing solar panels by falling off roofs. <laughs> um, that's not true for nuclear reactors. So it has a safety track record. Our emotional response to it is related to mushroom clouds and like scary shit that we saw in movies or the Chernobyl TV series or something. You know, we have an emotional reaction that's driving our decision-making. Instead of using the data, adding up the numbers and recognizing how many lives we could have saved if we hadn't outlawed reactors and we built them instead? You know, how many people's lives could have been improved? How many people could have brought out of extreme poverty if we had been able to provide energy for them? That's what we should have done. We know that now. We didn't know that before. Now we know it. A lot of environmentalists have, have understood this and changed their minds. We don't argue with them so much anymore. But there's a lot of work to do left to go change the laws, to get the support, to build those things. That's what we should be doing absolutely every day right now. There's no question. There are a bunch of other ideas that someday may help. We'd love to build fusion reactors, which are even safer and better, but uh, they're unproven. Hopefully that'll change. But in the meantime, we should be building nuclear reactors. And so that's the kind of thing that, again, you know, people listening might feel like, Nuclear reactors, I definitely, you know, they don't, they don't feel viscerally in their soul that like that's what they want. But humans need to evolve. That's kind of what your show is about. Like we, are, we have biological instincts that do not serve us anymore. We had to overcome that, you know. And we have, you know, we've tamed a lot of these instincts. You know, we, we were evolved to like want to kill shit. <laughs> you know, uh, that's not appropriate. Don't kill shit. Let's talk about it instead. You know, we have evolved past that and we have other instincts that we need to tame. And our emotional decision-making process is one that's, that's not serving us so well anymore. And so I think that in my mind would be, be the thing that um, I would hope to convince some of your listeners that they should consider. Mm, yeah. Beautiful. Hello. Um, really just acknowledge you for sharing your heart i mean i've known you acquaintance yeah right but nonetheless yeah i've never seen you so passionate so <laughs> so purpose-driven you know i learned more dimensions about who you are your your the way uh, you look at the world just really really appreciate just, you know being this heart center hacker slash venture capitalist <laughs> slash inventor and inspiring others to do the same thank yeah, you so much well, for being here Thanks for, thanks for listening to all my stories. <laughs> Hopefully somebody gets something out of it. If they don't, 
they're free to ignore me. <laughs> Beautiful.